everybody? How are you doing today? How many of you want to avoid the coronavirus and all viruses? I'm thankful that we serve a God that wants us to be healthy. He's he, beloved above all things. I wish that you were in good health, right? So uh, why don't we go ahead and have prayer, and I'll turn it over to Dan, who's going to introduce our speaker today, our own resident, Wes Youngberg. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for being our creator and our redeemer and wanting us to be healthy physically and spiritually and mentally and how all these things work together. Lord, I pray that you would give us alert minds today as we listen to Dr. Youngberg speak about how to uh, prepare for this and other things coming. And so please give him the words to speak today and anoint his lips and his mind as he speaks from his experience and from the things that you put on his heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Dan? Thank you, Pastor Dave. Good afternoon, everyone. You know, with uh, all that's been happening in the last week as we've been hearing about the coronavirus and the fear that that has created all around the world, Dr. Youngberg and I started talking. I called him on Thursday and said, hey, would you be willing to come to my Sabbath school class and say a few words for five minutes? The more we talked about it, we said, you know what, let's do a Sabbath afternoon program and just let him have a, a full discussion of this from a health standpoint. How many of you would like to know some simple things that you could do to strengthen your opportunity to avoid this and to deal with it if you came in contact with it, wouldn't you? Okay, today you're going to get that. And I'm very pleased, and I don't think Dr. Youngberg needs any introduction here, but some people may be watching on our live stream and will watch it later. And we're very fortunate here in Fallbrook to have Dr. Wes Youngberg and his family as members of our church. He is the director of the Youngberg a Lifestyle Medicine Clinic in Temecula. He has an incredible uh, array of treatment that he does for people all over the nation and some places in the world. Does a lot of his consultation by Skype. But he is into health and preventive health specifically. And he's going to be bringing some, uh, some things that will help us understand what is happening. Um, you know, here in our area, you may know that there are 201 people quarantined less than 50 miles from here. Okay, that, that were flown back out of China. And we hope that they're all doing well. In fact, we're praying for the people in China, in Bangladesh, India, United States, Canada, Germany, all the places in the world where people have gone from there. And we just are asking our God to be with them and to be with us. And it's a real privilege. Uh, Dr. Youngberg, um, he is, in addition to uh, being at the um, Youngberg Lifestyle Medicine Clinic here in Temecula. He's also an adjunct professor, an assistant uh, clinical professor, did I say that right? At Loma Linda University in, in their School of Public Health, School of Medicine, etc. And he also is a fellow of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, has a doctorate in clinical preventive care. And uh, I am very pleased and would like to invite you to welcome today Dr. Wes Youngberg. Thank you, Dan. Uh, what I've, I've been staying up late. I'm not supposed to stay up late when you're preparing to keep your immune system strong. But all this week, I've been staying up late trying to keep up with this amazing uh, new information every day. You know, just things are changing hour by hour as we're uh, as we're trying to understand this novel coronavirus. 
uh, epidemic and that is now going pandemic. And uh, what does it mean? It, it, uh, well, there was a report just yesterday that I read. It says we should really be focusing on the flu, not on the coronavirus. Is that true? Is it true that the coronavirus is, 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 is not as much of a problem as the, the regular seasonal flu? Uh, we, we, there's so much information and mixed information, and, and, and I've actually found it somewhat difficult to keep up on it myself, and I've been studying this for 35 years. And so it's, it's clear to me that the average layperson in the public is just going to be just overwhelmed with information and not really be able to make uh, heads or tails of, you know, well, what's going on? We're being told, well, wait a minute, just, just a few days ago, the World Health Organization uh, declared a, a global health emergency because of the coronavirus epidemic. Okay, should that somehow impact what we're doing in our personal lives today? Um, or do we just sit back and wait for the government and other health authorities tell us what to do next. Is there something that we can start doing right now? Or as yesterday, on January the 31st, uh, when, uh, when the United States Task Force on the Coronavirus came out and, is, and basically declared a national public health emergency. These, these are... These are unprecedented times that we're dealing with, and, and yet we keep hearing, you know, we're really at low risk. And so the, the implications, I think, to the average lay person is just, just keep stressing, <laughs> which is the last thing that we should be doing right now is stressing, because stress in our lives, uh, not knowing what's going to happen next, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to prepare ourselves, is the worst thing for our immune system. And so today, uh, my hope is to try to make sense of what the latest information is, which, again, is changing from day to day. So uh, a month from now, or even a few days from now, uh, there, there may be different perspectives coming out. But it's, in, it's important that we start making some decisions right now. And, and that's going to become clearer as we get through the data that is unfolded over the last week in particular. The, so my philosophy in, as a lifestyle medicine specialist and a clinical nutritionist is to be 100% honest with my patient about what's going on in their health. Uh, I, I, I have a reputation for doing lots of lab tests. And because of that, we're going to find some stuff that's wrong. I don't care how healthy you are, we're going to find some stuff that isn't good. We're not going to just do the regular, you know, metabolic profile and complete blood count and, and a thyroid stimulating hormone. We're, we're doing, you know, a lot more than that to figure out what are our weak points and therefore what can we do about it. So I, I've, uh, I call it the philosophy of Desire of Ages, page 104, but 102, 104, um, where, where uh, John the Baptist, uh, it's a chapter on John the Baptist, when you say he saw his people, the, the Jewish people, deceived and asleep in their sins. Okay, they, and, and, and so he longed to rouse them. 
to make better decisions with their lives. And, and his approach to doing so was basically tell it like it is. Don't, don't sugarcoat it. Just tell it like it is. Okay? And then provide answers that give hope. And so I'm going to try to appropriately report what I feel is going on uh, based on the, the literature. That There's a lot of literature that's amassing that's being published every day in top medical journals. Uh, and, and then give you some significant hope. Because um, there, I'm going to share with you an example of, um, it was actually a Seventh-day Adventist seminary in 1918 near the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota, where the majority of the, the uh, individuals in the school and the faculty lived under one big roof. It was a huge, huge building. 120 people in that building were exposed to the Spanish flu. This is a flu that over the course of, uh, of 1918 through 1920 took, uh, took the lives of between 50 and 100 million individuals. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain to you how the physician in charge of that student and, and faculty group implemented a protocol that cured... At all 90 patients who had come down with the Spanish flu. Not one fatality. In other words, there are insights from history that if we pay attention to, we can gain great insight from. And, uh, and so, uh, that, in other words, there is hope. There are things that we can do. There's, there's a concept called passive stress versus active stress. Uh, Dr. Neil Nedley talks about this in his uh, depression recovery series. He says if, if, if you're just stressed out, but you have no idea what to do about it, and you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, you're waiting to get exposed, you're, 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 you know, uh, you're, you're basically not sure what's going on, and that type of stress significantly depresses the immune system, thus perpetuating exactly what you don't want to happen. Whereas active stress is when you purpose in your heart to do something about it and you figure out what the most rational, prudent, appropriate strategies are and you begin implementing, you're doing something about that uh, according to your abilities and knowledge and understanding. And by doing so, that becomes an active stress that actually enhances your immune system which is exactly what we need in situations like this, when the body's defense against a virus or another pathogen may be the determining factor on whether you become infected and therefore whether you end up transmitting that pathogen to other people, especially people that you love or people that you work with or people uh, around you. And so, so it's important that we, that we dig in and start having some active stress, right? That's what we're doing today. We're getting into some active stress, doing something about it. And then what my goal is to share with you additional natural remedies that directly impact how to optimize our immunity. 
and apply those appropriately. And then finally, I want to share with you what we call simple remedies. We have natural remedies, which are the, the lifestyle medicine strategies. Okay? Um, and then we have simple remedies, which are, which are strategies that we could take advantage of, both as a preventive to optimize the immune system, and in particular as a therapeutic strategy for those of us who may get exposed and for those of us uh, uh, who unfortunately actually catch any kind of viral respiratory illness. So these type of strategies are not just for us to prepare and address the novel coronavirus, but they're also the very same strategies that we use to impact any, any respiratory condition, any immune-related condition. All right, so that's what we're going to try to get done today. Uh, how many hours you got? <laughs> okay, so uh, that is a joke, but uh, we'll try to run through this. So it's, um, my first challenge is to summarize what, I, what, what we have learned, what's available in the medical literature over the last week. And that's, that's, that's a major, major uh, a challenge. Uh, it's, it's of interest to me that today, uh, February 1, 2020, um, marks exactly two months from the very first reported case of novel coronavirus in Wuhan City in China. So it's been just a little bit over 60 days. And wow, have things changed so dramatically. It is also very interesting to me that we didn't really start being even cons that concerned about this until around January 23rd when it was starting to get announced. That was just over a week ago. And my house, how have things changed over the last seven, eight days. Uh, so um, one, one of the first things that we want to take a look at, and this is, this is hard to see, uh, maybe from the back of the church, but you can look this up on the Internet. Essentially, um, essentially, this is looking at the outbreaks from January 20 to January 30. In January 20, there was 291 cases uh, identified. Uh, by, by the way, um, Dr. Fauci, who's the national, uh, the director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease, said something at a press conference just yesterday, January the 31st, that was very telling. I first heard him say it on the radio as I was driving, and, and I go, well, I got to look into this, because a lot of people miss this. And the question was a very astute question about the, the accuracy of the diagnostic test. See, it's very possible that the majority of us actually feel that if we go get tested for this and it comes back negative, that we don't have the virus. That's not true. In other words, they made a very special point to state, properly so, that this is not like getting tested for HIV. Where the, where the test tells us with 100% certainty whether or not you have HIV. Uh, this test isn't even close to that. Those are, those are his exact words. 
And so the the actual even all the data that we're that we're reporting on is based on much less than accurate measurement uh, screening. So so this this is something we got to really understand. In fact, they specifically said you could test somebody one day and they'd be positive and the next day they are negative and a couple days later they're positive and so the the specificity and the sensitivity of the test the likelihood of it being a a truly positive test okay or a truly negative test is in question and so the scientists around the world are are working night and day trying to figure out how to come up with a better test but that's the best we have at this point in time. So, so even, even with less than uh, adequate or less than optimal testing, um, we, we see this exponential rise of confirmed cases. In other words, the tests are not good enough to, to give us the higher level of confirmed cases. And so in just a 10-day period, you see from January 20 to January 30, you have an increase from 291 to 7,711. Well, just this morning on February the 1st, we are learning that there's over 12,000 cases and counting, and there's uh, 249, or is it, I think that's close, close, 249 actually uh, well, actually, it's, by, it's, it's past 250 now. So, I, uh, so bottom line is that we are looking at a significant uh, death rate uh, looking at the numbers directly. Um, so let me, let me try to summarize all, all this data real quick. Uh, the, Dr. Uh, Tedros at Geneva the, of the World Health Organization has called this an unprecedented outbreak that has been met with an unprecedented response. The question always is, you know, you always ask, what's, what's the justification for the lockdowns? What's the justification for not allowing people into the country? What, what's the justification for closing borders all around the world? And, and the, but the real question is, did we actually catch this in time? And, and the general consensus is no, that it did not get caught in time because because prior to the lockdown, which I believe was January 23rd in, um, in, in Wuhan City, 5 million individuals had left Wuhan City that had been there during the infectious period. Okay, what does that tell you? What, what does that tell you about the likelihood of how many of those individuals, and, and we know that there's persons of interest that are being evaluated uh, right now around the country. Uh, but I suspect that there's a lot more people being evaluated because of the knowledge, not being discussed, because of the knowledge that there were, there were potentially thousands of individuals uh, traveling to Wuhan for the, the celebrations that are already back in their respective countries, many of which I, I would expect would be in our country. And so so there's, there's potentially a lot of individuals around that, that have been exposed, and most of them may not even know it. So it's, it's just something that prudence suggests we should at least consider. We don't know the facts on that yet, but, but we need to be prepared for that. 
the, the, the bottom line is, is that if people start asking the question and being honest with themselves about, is this a, an outbreak that can be truly contained? Is this, is this a, a, um, an epidemic that, that um, isn't going to actually get to impact me as a person? And, and the likelihood of that not happening is very low. Okay, so we are technically right now at a very low risk. Okay, but that's what was being said six weeks ago or even a couple weeks ago uh, by, by the top officials in China. Um, and in fact, the virus was, was being transmitted in, in a dramatic fashion at that time. So, so we don't know what's going to happen, but... But, but everything that's happening at the World Health Organization and at the national level here in the United States is, is, should be giving us clues that we need to pay attention and not just wait for more information. There are things that we can do immediately at this time. The, the, the significance of a, of a quarantine or a lockdown in the province of Ubay, Ubay uh, is which is a province that uh, has a population of roughly 60 million individuals, would be comparable to the entire population of California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Arizona being in lockdown. So that maybe brings it uh, uh, close to home a little bit. So, and there's, there's obviously, there's, there's different uh, policies depending on where and the uh, Ube com, uh, province they are, but essentially most of those people in cities are basically not able to leave at all. Everybody's basically depending on the government to take care of them at that point, which, which is, is something to ponder for ourselves in the future. So, um, bottom line is that we need, because the World Health Organization is causing this an unprecedented outbreak, we need an unprecedented level of preparation uh, and and uh, 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 interest in making wise decisions as we move forward. Um, there, there has been a, a suggestion that there's a lot of similarities between the 2002 SARS outbreak, that's the severe acute respiratory syndrome outbreak and that also began in China, uh, and, and liking it to the novel coronavirus epidemic. While there's some significant similarities, but there's also some very significant differences. Uh, that means that we should, uh, in some respects, be more concerned. On the one hand, uh, it appears that, that the coronavirus is, is, not, as, um, is not as deadly doesn't kill as quickly as, as the coronavirus. But the problem is, is that one of the reasons that the SARS virus was actually, actually burned itself out is because it, it was killing its hosts faster than the hosts were able to infect other people. And if that happens, eventually the, the virus burns itself out. Or if long enough period goes by, that virus can mutate sometimes for, to the worse or sometimes to a less virulent state. So 
So anyways, um, so there, there, is, there, is, um, there is still concerns because the virus itself, the coronavirus, can be transmitted for potentially up to a week or, or maybe even more prior to symptoms developing. And that was not true of the SARS virus. So it's a completely different ballgame now. Okay? And the other concern is that the, uh, the uh, basically reproduction number, it's called the basic virus reproduction number, which is if you get infected, on average, how many other people are you going to infect? And so the basic reproduc uh, reproduction number for the uh, novel coronavirus is actually significantly higher than that for the common flu, the seasonal flu. Even the flus that are bad, you know, like, like this year's flu is not, is, 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 is not going to be a good thing. Um, but um, and, but it's, it's actually um, even higher than the reproduction number for the Spanish flu of 1918. So let's, let's go over that briefly. The, the, uh, the, the Spanish, or the, 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 the flu, has a reproduction number of 1.28. Um, that means that for every person who's infected, that there's another, well, for every, for every 10 people that are infected, there is less than three additional people that get infected. So it's, it still builds, the momentum builds, and even that lower reproduction number is associated with between 10 and 20% of the entire population of the United States coming down with the seasonal flu every year. That's a significant number to remember. Okay? And so there's a, a lower reproduction number, but there's already, this, this flu season alone, there's already been over 15 million individuals who have succumbed to the flu, who have gotten the flu, and of which, of which uh, about uh, 8,200 have died. So what, what's interesting about that, let me jump, uh, jump to the numbers on that in my, in my notes, that, that, um, that means that the death rate due to the flu, again, again, this year in the United States alone, this flu season, we've already uh, had 8,200 people die. So that's, you know, on the surface seems to be a much more serious problem. And that's why you were seeing articles all the time about flu is much a bigger problem than coronavirus. But they're not, they're not uh, accounting for what may happen. And what may, will likely happen if we have any semblance of what's going on in China happen in the United States. So the, the, the death rate due to the flu, if you calculate, if you just basically take 8,200 and divide it by the 15 million cases that generated those deaths, um, that's, that's a death rate of 0.05%. That's... One twentieth of one percent. The latest uh, estimates, and, and these these are probably low estimates, based on mathematical models that the universities around Asia are coming up with, are are looking at at the 
the, uh, the death rate associated as of, as of the last few days uh, with, let's say, we have, as of yesterday, 200, 250 deaths with about 12,000 cases confirmed. That means that the death rate is 2.1%. Now, do the math. What's the difference between 0.05% and 2.1? That's a differential of 40. In other words, according to that simple math, and I hope I'm wrong, I haven't heard anybody talk about this yet. I haven't read anything about it. I just did the simple math, and you do it yourself. I hope I'm wrong, but it's, it's literally a death rate compared to what's going on in China right now as of today and and what's going on in, with the flu in the United States, the death rate in China with the, cor- the coronavirus is 40 times greater for those that get infected. The other, the other way to look at this is that the, the individuals who have been admitted to the hospital in other words, their symptoms are bad enough to get admitted to the hospital. They, uh, in, in China, the, the, the death rate associated with that, once you get admitted because you have a more severe case, uh, is between 11 and 15%. The first 41 cases that were admitted to hospitals in China because of the novel coronavirus leading to severe symptoms resulted in a 15% death rate. And there's authorities are, are, stay, are stating just as of yesterday that they believe that the virus may be mutating to be more virulent because of what they're seeing. What one professor from Hong Kong uh, went to evaluate the situation. He came back, and he was an expert in the SARS epidemic. He, that's, that's his expertise. He came back and says, coronavirus... Uh, the novel coronavirus epidemic is 10 times worse. Now, I, I'd like to know exactly what he meant by that, you know, based on what statistics, based on what information, but that's, that's what he said, uh, as was reported in the news. So, um, so you know, and I, I could literally spend another couple hours do, uh, doing this introduction. My wife said, you get 15 minutes for the introduction, that's it. Okay, so, so we have to give you the rest of the introduction some other time. Um, the, uh, oh, I got to do this part. Uh, <laughs> I got to do this part too. So, um, so I, I, I did, uh, I did some, some statistical analysis myself. So the, the reproductive number for the novel coronavirus is 2.2. In other words, for every person that's infected so far, the, the uh, rate of infecting other people is 2.2 people, which uh, was, was termed an explosive number. Now, when you just hear the number, you go like, yeah, compared to what? That doesn't seem to be that high. It's 2.2, right? But, but it's actually an explosive number compared to the flu being 1.28 and the Spanish flu being 1.8. It's, it's, so it's, it's bigger. There's, it's more effective, and mainly because... You spend up to a week or I don't know how many days. We'll figure out uh, as we learn more about it, uh, infecting people, and we're feeling just fine. And we're infecting the, the very people that are closest to our lives. 
So, um, <clears throat> so what, what I did is I just got out my calculator and I just, I just punched in, let's see, so the infective rate is 2.2. So how many, how many stages of infection do you need before you get to 12,000 or so? And I, dis I, I discovered that you needed 12 stages. Okay, and, and if, so if you do the math based on if, that's, if that number is correct, that means that every five days, 2.2 additional individuals are being infected by each person who's being infected, that, that was originally infected. Every five days, it, it goes up by 2.2. And so, so, so that's, that's interesting, but, you know, it, it's confusing because the, uh, a, a university, um, and I'll, I'll come to that in my notes later, but one of the university uh, epidemiologists in Asia actually uh, uh, wrote a, an article, I believe in the Lancet, med, uh, a British medical journal, very one of the top medical journals in the world, and he said, says the mathematical models that I'm looking at suggest that by January 25, Okay, I'm so week ago, that the the number of infected cases in Wuhan City alone was over seventy five thousand. Okay, so uh, in other words, we don't know, but that's what they're publishing, and 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 that would that would be a much more serious issue in terms of that's why I believe the the World Health Organization and our own government are jumping on this right away. Uh, because at least they need to do what they've done, right? So, all right. So let's let's uh, let's move forward here. And then, the Dr. Fauci said where we're dealing with a lot of unknowns. Um, you know that the the uh, just just in the last 24 hours, uh, there's been an additional 2,100 cases and additional 46 deaths. Um, the the um, The, there was one other quote that I wanted to mention here um, before we move on to strategies. Um, yeah, Dr. Nancy Massonier, who's the director of National Center of, uh, for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases at the CDC, said, we are preparing as if this is the next pandemic, but we're hoping that it's not. Okay, and that, that's what we need to do too. We just need to prepare for it. And the good, the good thing is there's things that we can do. Um, last of all, uh, some of you may have read in the New York Times uh, today, the Chinese doctor, Dr. Wang, who is the head of pulmonary medicine at Peking University Hospital in Beijing, had, had stated initially had, uh, that the virus was controllable, and he's regretting his words now. He's feeling very bad about it. In fact, he, uh, he described the outbreak uh, and the work being done by medical staff around his country as soldiers walking into the battlefield. Um, uh, initially, he had said that the coronavirus could not be transmitted human to human. Okay? He went to Wuhan City to evaluate the situation because he was the expert. Uh, later contracted the virus, and this, the article said apparently uh, while in Wuhan. Uh, so he, uh, 
somebody on the Chinese Twitter, which is called Weibo, uh, said, could be prevented and controlled. Because, this, because of this line, the statement that Dr. Wang had made, the most critical half month was squandered, and the result is this. And so when I read that, I asked myself the question. Okay? That's why I'm taking the risk to talk to you today. This is, this is not something that I wanted to do or, or any, any really health professionals eager to talk about the, the state of the coronavirus because tomorrow it could be a totally different message. Uh, but um, but we, need, we need to move forward, and that's exactly what I'm going to do now. All right, so... Um, uh, just uh, today in the New York Times, as I was reading about this, uh, the, the apologies of Chinese officials who wish that they would have been more aggressive in dealing with this up front uh, in the three or four weeks uh, before they finally did something uh, about it. Um, they, there's, I, I, I thought this was just an advertisement, you know, <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, and, and I looked at that and said, my, those are awful big. And essentially, these are health workers uh, in a city 300 miles from Wuhan City that are pouring disinfectant into these units to be sprayed over the cities. Now, wow, okay, uh, such a novel response for a novel coronavirus and so, again, it caused me to, to, to be thoughtful about this. What, what does this tell us? You know, there's, there's other things that we don't know about this that they already know. And, uh, and, but it, 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 it does my heart good to recognize that there's an aggressive approach being taken. They're, you know, leave no stone unturned. Let's, let's do, even if it's overkill, you know, that would be my first initial thought. Isn't that a little overkill? But maybe it's not. Okay, so we need to be prepared. So, hey, bottom line, one of the, as we look at the symptom list, I think it's important to understand that, that uh, the virus seems to start with a fever, but not maybe for up to 14 days after becoming infected. And, and that's a fever of 100 or, or, or more. And then, and then there's a dry cough and then shortness of breath and then potential more severe symptoms. What is, what is uh, interesting is that the symptoms of sneezing, okay, even though it's listed up here, is considered to be a rarer symptom of this condition. So runny nose and sneezing is actually not, at least up until now, is not that prominent compared to fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath. Okay. Um, it was Herbert Hoover, I love to quote him, who said, wisdom consists not so much in knowing what to do in the ultimate as in knowing what to do next. Okay, and, and, and never more appropriate time to be aware of this admonition because too many of us wait it out. I'm just going to wait and get some more information, need to collect some more information, need to read some more research, and in the meantime... We, uh, thousands and, and, and potentially tens of thousands get infected and die. So don't wait. Don't sit on your laurels. Let's, let's move forward. Okay. 
Um, you can't see this, but I just wanted to, to document that 10 years ago, in this very church, I gave a talk on optimizing your immune system. And, uh, and after my talk, this gentleman who had never met before came up to me and said, have you ever heard about the, the, the Danish-Norwegian seminary in Minnesota that had been exposed to the Spanish flu? I said, no, I never heard that. So he, a few days later, emailed me this very document. And, uh, and so this was, this was, a, this was a, a newspaper article that, that was published in the Hutchinson Leader on December 13, I believe, 1918, but it may have been the following year because it was, it was a bad pandemic. And, um, and so let, let, me, let me just uh, re read this to you because this, this tells the story of, of hope and, and of what uh, prudent natural remedies can do even for a pandemic that killed between 50 and 100 million people in a short span of time in, in 1918 and 19. So, um, seminary clinches the flu. Uh, Hutchinson Institution makes a record combating disease. 120 exposed, 90 patients, no deaths, none very sick. I mean, that's just extraordinary. Okay, not only did they prevent death, but they actually prevented the severe morbidity that that uh, not only makes you feel horrible for days and weeks, uh, uh, but, but can actually maim you for life, that can put you into post-traumatic stress syndrome, literally, for life, that can, that can damage your kidneys, where you need medical support and treatment for your kidneys for life, uh, where you can develop all kinds of other physical and neurologic uh, ailments. For life. So we don't, we don't want to, certainly we don't want to die from something like this. You know, and right now we're not at risk, but, but obviously there's a lot of people around the world that are at high risk, and that could potentially end up impacting us as well. Uh, but, but we also don't want to even get severely sick, even if it's just the regular flu and, and, and how, how the flu can lead to severe illness like sepsis. Do you know, you know that one out of five individuals in the, are around the world, one out of five deaths, rather, are caused by sepsis? Okay, it's a condition that initially that starts with a septicemia or, or a, a viral attack that then stimulates an inflammatory response. And it's a very complicated biochemistry that, that it basically uh, uh, starts causing hundreds of little microclots that and you can so that's why the in the emergency room they doctors will check platelet levels if the platelet levels are low they they strongly suspect that the platelets are being used up to create blood clots and of course those blood clots go to the brain and cause little TIAs all over the place and that's why confusion and 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 dementive type symptoms are one of the signs of sepsis um, and it causes kidney failure. I mean, 
one out of five people in the world die because of sepsis. And so there's natural and simple strategies that can be employed to directly impact that as well. Okay, so, so um, let me keep, uh, read this real quick. Um, the, um, on the authority of Dr. Fred Shepard, health officer of Hutchinson City, which is just west of Minneapolis, it may be stated that no public institution in the state of Minnesota has up-to-date made, up made a record in handling influenza. The worldwide epidemic that has swept millions into their grave, like, like, that, to credit, like that to credit of the Hutchinson Seventh-day Adventist Seminary. The seminary, with 120 of its 180 students and teachers, housed under one roof. Now... <laughs> When I, when I read that, I say, I wonder if I, if I can find a picture of, of that building. By the way, Maplewood uh, Academy now uses, I don't know if it's the same building, but they now use that property. Uh, and, um, and so this is a, this is a postcard from 1913-ish in that, in that range. So, so how many of you would like to be in a building like that with, with 120 other individuals in the middle of a Spanish flu epidemic. Not me. You know, I mean, talk about exposure, right? Uh, how do you get away? And then, and then look at the surroundings. You know, this is, I've been to Minnesota in the winter, you know, and it's, uh, it's pretty bleak, you know. It's pretty bleak out there. And so, so, it's, um, so you're kind of stuck. And so... Um, the. So the house under one roof was invaded by the malady three weeks ago. So this would have been in, in uh, late uh, November. Symptoms of the malady developed with some 90 of these students and faculty. And under the direction of Dr. H.E. Larson, a graduate physician and member of the seminary faculty. So that's, that's the trick. If, you, if you're running a school anywhere, make sure you have a good doctor on your faculty even though they may be teaching other courses. Uh, every person showing indications of sickness, and so this is step number one. Every person showing indications of sickness was at once put to bed with a trained nurse taking temperature and watching for symptoms of the epidemic. In other words, quarantined to a bed. So that, that, I, we can't overemphasize this point. That, that rest and sleep, and, you know, we joke about that, complete rest. I don't, you know, I don't feel, I feel like I, I need to go do something. That's the whole problem that where we succumb to the illnesses because we're, we're so driven to get things done that we never give the body a chance to heal. So this, uh, this is a critical, critical step. I I remember just five years ago, I was in San Antonio at the general conference meetings, and there was a booth there uh, by the uh, a medical school, a university in Nigeria. Uh, and so they, they were near where I was, I had a booth, and, and, um, and so I went up to a gentleman there that was, uh, that was uh, talking to people, and he, he turned out to be a chaplain. And he asked me what I did, and we started talking. He says, you know what? I come from a long line of herbalists in Africa. He said, many of, many of my uh, ancestors were master herbalists. And, um, 
He said, you know, then he talked about how now we're, we have a Western medical school, so we don't talk about herbs that much anymore, <laughs> uh, except on the side. But the, he said one of the traditions in herbal medicine is when, when the, the, the herbalist gives you an herb that is specially designed for your condition, he or she will tell you, take this and make sure that you get a good night's rest. Make sure that you're sleeping well. Make sure that you're resting adequately. Be and this is the point. Because if you don't, this medicine will not work. Okay, so I, I never forgot that. So this is, so the, the, the number one thing, if you don't learn anything else from this talk today, is that you need to take care of rest and appropriate sleep. And if you're struggling with that, and I know many of you do, because I've been dealing with patients for 30 years on this, don't give up until you figure out a way to do it. Because if you do give up on that, you are putting your immune system at risk, and that dramatically increases your susceptibility to any virus. So, um, immediately put to bed with the trained nurse. If those symptoms develop, the patient was required to remain in bed. There were no drugs to be given out. With complete uh, rest and quiet, went a careful regulated diet, number two, careful regula carefully regulated diet, and fomentations applied to the throat, chest, and abdomen. Now, let me actually, let me actually address that right now, okay? And um, let me just, I got these fomentations from Dr. Thomas, probably 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, and these, these fomentations, these are basically uh, uh, appropriate cloths that will hold water in moisture. So you basically wet these, and then you, you make sure that they're not soaking wet. You kind of wring them out. You can do this with regular towels, but regular towels don't work as well as, as uh, these. As and you, by the way, you can buy these online. Uh, uh, just, just Google it. You, you can buy, buy fomentations. The new ones come with little, little tabs so you're not burning your thumbs every time you pick it up. And you just uh, uh, wet these, and, and, and you can put it in a plastic bag and microwave it and, uh, for like five minutes. And then you, you, you have one on your back. You just lay on it. Okay, on the, just get on the floor with some sheets down and just lay on it. And then you have another one placed on your chest like this. You have to have a towel between you and this, otherwise it might burn you, because this is really hot. And for, for four to five minutes, you just sit there and just enjoy that deep heat from both sides, the back and the, and the front of the chest, okay? And that, that draws blood and a dramatic improvement of circulation of, of, of uh, blood and immune cells to that area where the heat is. Uh, those immune cells... Uh, uh, more integrate with the immune centers of the body. And then you do ice water with a washcloth for 30 seconds in between sessions. You have to have somebody helping you to do this, right? So, um, so, so you, you get washed down with some ice front and back to cool that off. And then whoever's helping you has already got two of these in the microwave ready to heat up for the next phase. And you do that three times. It's very, very powerful. And so, so fomentations to the chest in particular here 
uh, can be very effective. In a little bit, I'll talk about steam hydrotherapy to the sinuses, okay, and other forms of hydrotherapy as well. So, so these type of fomentations were, were used by the nurses that took care of these 90 individuals that came down with the Spanish flu. Uh, thank God for nurses, right? I mean, talk about uh, a lot of hard work there. All right, so the, um, the, uh, this treatment in almost every case reduced the temperature of patients, and in a day, I'm talking to the Spanish flu now, in a day or so, they were apparently well. But that did not end the matter with them. The next danger was a relapse. To guard against this, every patient was required to remain in bed between two and five days after apparent full recovery. You can't overemphasize that because our, our, our nature is to just... Just as soon as I'm great, I'm good, and man, I got I have all these other things that I I didn't get done because I was sick for a week. Okay, and so now I'm gonna jump right back to it. That's the worst mistake you can make because a relapse could actually be worse than the original sickness. Why? Because you just got done killing off 90% of the viruses, but not the 10% that they were the strongest and most virulent. Okay? So that's why when your doctor gives you a, a, a set of 14 days of antibiotics, you don't take it for 10 days and go like, whew, I feel good, I'm done. No, you always finish the antibiotics. Why? Because otherwise you're just creating drug-resistant strains of bacteria. And you could end up far worse for not finishing the course. Okay, so, um, so these, 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 this is the core of what, what's going to work, folks, um, uh, as proven in history. And, um, but, okay, so to guard against this, every patient was required to stay in bed for two to three days uh, a, a, according to the state of their flu affliction. In other words, if there was any sign, then that took it another two to five days. All right, so as a result of this system of handling the disease um, uh, that is scoring thousands of victims every day, there has not been one case that could have been called serious, or a single death in the seminary, although there were more than 90 persons affected. The record is remarkable. And, and the last statement written by the reporter for the, uh, the Hutchinson Leader newspaper stated this, it makes the ordinary methods of dealing with the flu appear irrational. Interesting statement. So, so, that's, um, that, so that is the, the core of what I wanted to share with regards to uh, the hope that we should all take advantage of. Now, um, let's run through this uh, fairly rapidly. Winston Churchill, uh, I, love, I love to quote him as well. He said, men stumble over the truth from time to time, but most pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened. I hope that us here today don't do exactly that. We go like, oh, that was interesting, and then rush off and, and, and don't get enough sleep and don't eat right and, and don't take care of the natural remedies and don't even consider what other things that we can do. Uh, okay, so 
Um, just as I this week as I was uh, preparing this talk, I ran across a quote from Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, how many of you appreciate Malcolm Gladwell? I mean, he's got his books are so insightful, and and, and he said the key to good decision making is not knowledge. It is understanding. We are swimming in the former and we are desperately lacking in the latter. That's why I get into trouble with a lot of people for taking so long to explain things to help them understand the problem. Because just simply telling you, do this, this, and this, and this, means you're probably not going to do it. Because you have no idea why it's important. Okay, so, so that's, that's why I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do today is to give you an understanding of why these strategies are so, so critical, and not just for us, but for, for many individuals that can be benefited because, because we don't just know this, but we understand how to apply it appropriately. Um, by the way, he, he said this, he said this in a YouTube uh, uh, clip that was entitled, Why 98% Aren't Successful. Clearly, he wasn't talking about fighting the flu or the coronavirus, but an interesting uh, association here. Why are most people not successful, at least in, in preventing severe symptoms of this or preventing contamination in the first place? And there's reasons for that. All right, so uh, my, my one of my father's favorite concepts is that of synergy. And it's essentially... Synergy is a concept that you don't just do one thing. This, this idea of uh, many of us uh, are, are champions of our own wellness program, and we do one thing. We're really good with nutrition. Yeah, I believe in that. I'm a nutritionist. Okay? But that's one thing. Okay? We need to synergize that. We need to multiply the impact, the benefit of that, with other things as well. And so the example here is when one horse... Uh, is, is tied up to a wagon. It can pull two tons. But if, if uh, two horses are yoked together, they can pull 23 tons. Huh? Okay, so that's, that's the synergy of, of lifestyle, lifestyle factors. Okay, so um, what I'm going to do next is I'm going to share with you then some of the natural remedies, starting with, and, and I'm going to be jumping around with the New START acronym, but in a slightly different way. Uh, here we're beginning really with trust, trust in divine guidance, but also trust in a way that we don't stress all the time. As I mentioned earlier, there's a difference between passive and active stress. We need to turn this into active stress that we're doing something about so we can feel good about it and no longer stressed. And so we need to learn to think good thoughts. We need to recognize that that there is hope. We need to recognize the problem, but help people work through that. And, and by, by knowing what to do ourselves, we can help other people who are struggling with that in the future. Uh, so um, the, 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 the N in New Start is nutrition. And so I always say, and, and as I wrote uh, uh, my book, Goodbye Diabetes, we, we called it becoming a first-class foodie. In other words, focusing on the best Focusing on, on the foods that promote first-class health. Focusing on the foods that promote first-class and optimize immune system. And so there's, there's core principles to this, and I want to just touch on a, on a couple of them. We need to, we need to be aware and, and, uh, and follow through on the notion that there are first-class foods that we should be 
by focusing and getting at least 80 to 90% of our diet from first-class foods. And this is well written up in, in the literature and the books that we've written. Um, but, but then there's second-class foods. And these are the foods that we need to use in, 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 in scarcity, that, that we, can, we can dabble in, but we need to be really careful. We need to be cautious. It's a red-light food. Uh, and then there's third-class foods, which we just need to accept the fact that they're not good for us and to stay away from them. This is really, really critical that we do. So, so that's, that, that's some of the key aspects of, of nutrition. Uh, understand that, that the colors in foods, the very pigments in fruits and vegetables that make up the color of the food are the very chemicals, the very phytochemicals that literally turn on good genes and turn off the bad genes. And so all of us have bad genes. Let me be the clear. We all have mutations. We all have bad genes. And, and by, by taking advantage of an optimal diet, we can literally uh, deactivate, to a large extent, the, uh, those genes phenotypically. We change the expression of our genes. We're not changing the fact that we have the gene. We're changing the expression of the gene itself, which in the end is everything. Okay, so, so, we, so we need to take advantage of diet. And let me just say one thing about diet. Most important thing is you've got to eat a lot of good food. Okay, there's a lot of people that, that uh, avoid, uh, avoid all the, the third-class foods, the, the, the red-light foods, the bad foods. But most of their foods are uh, otherwise. There's very few green-light foods, and there's mostly yellow-light foods. Those people aren't going to be healthy, even though they completely avoid the third-class foods. So, so number one, we have to eat a lot of healthy food. And, and, and that is, uh, this is, a, this is a, a handout that I actually give to most of my patients now, which I call the three-cube diet. Uh, this is, this, this is a, a, a dietary concept. She doesn't call it three-cube but she's the one that came up with the idea that Dr. Terry Walls from University of Iowa Medical Center, who 30 years ago, as a young internal medicine physician, discovered she has progressive MS. And she was told by her experts just to, just to retire from medicine and, and die because she was going to die from it. And she refused to accept that. And she figured out on her own, by her own research, uh, over, over several years, what to do. And 30 years later, she's teaching doctors how to follow the same protocol uh, and, and basically an, an anti-autoimmune protocol for conditions as severe as MS. It's, it's a, it's a, she's done a wonderful work. And so she basically has this, this three cups of greens, three cups of colored vegetables, including some deeply colored fruits like blueberries and, and, and grapefruit, and then three cups of sulfur-rich, uh, vegetables uh, like purple cabbage, onions, and mushrooms. Um, over the last year in particular, my wife Betsy and I have been doing this veggie stir-fry essentially every morning. I would have never guessed years ago that my favorite part of breakfast would be, would be the, part, the, the big part of the three-cube diet that, that focused on Stir-fry vegetables. You just add a little bit of water. You don't even have to add much water because the vegetables are fairly hydrated. And, and you just stir-fry the onions and the mushrooms and the purple cabbage, and that's my favorite part of breakfast. Now, it's not my only part, but that's the core. Those are the foods that heal the body. 
Let there be no mistake. Those are the foods that heal the body. And if we're not taking advantage of foods like that, we're not going to be optimally healthy. Just that simple. Okay, so um, I, she uses this slogan, 100 days, 100%. So when she works with patients, she is basically saying, she's basically saying that the, the, for three months, for 100 days, you want to be, you want to be on it 100%. Because unless you really go all out, you're not going to get the results, especially if you're dealing with a serious illness. And so I, I, I'm, th I'm thinking this week as we're learning about what may be going on, unbeknownst to us, even in our country, maybe this is the time where we really say 100 days, 100%. Not just for the nutrition component, but for all the natural remedies that are so powerful and synergistic in optimizing our health. So... Um, Optimizing digestion. Uh, I've said in my practice and I've said in my many lectures that we've done here that if you have a digestive problem, you've got to fix it. It's not just a social issue. It's not just a, a discomfort issue. This is a huge issue because if you're not digestive, digesting right, if you have to take antacid medications or proton pump inhibitors, now you're not absorbing nutrients very well. And that's why exposure to those type of medications has been well documented in medical literature to increase the risk for just about everything. And certainly you're decreasing your absorption of key minerals, which are, which are critical for the immune system, like magnesium and, and zinc and selenium, etc. By the way, uh, one of the big uh, uh, understandings about how these these coronaviruses that should not transmit to humans, that should stay in the animal population, how they mutate to the point that they can transmit um, uh, and, and, and infect humans is because the soil in China and other parts of, of that region are very depleted of selenium. This has been in the literature for over 30 years now. And so, so it's possible, and I'm hoping that that, um, that when the virus finally does, does expose individuals that are selenium uh, replete, they have plenty of selenium because they like to eat Brazil nuts, just one Brazil nut a day really optimizes your, your selenium levels. Uh, maybe two a day would be more optimal. But um, having selenium replete status in your body helps, helps protect against more aggressive mutations of these viruses and potentially helps revert that uh, towards mutations that are less harmful. So, so that optimized digestion is critical. Exercise. Now, this is, this is a double-edged sword. We've got to be really careful with exercise. So if somebody is apparently healthy, uh, we, you want to increase exercise intensity and duration and frequency uh, gradually. Okay, and so you want to do some exercise every day. In fact, multiple times every day. We, we want to be, here, here are the key points. You want to be doing, at minimum, some light activity immediately after every meal. Why? Because, because we have known with diabetics and pre-diabetics, and essentially the rest, of the, the, the rest of us who are insulin resistant, that light exercise immediately after a meal doesn't make us sweaty, doesn't make us breathe deeply. It just improves circulation and uses up that sugar so that instead of the blood sugars going sky high, the, the blood sugars are blunted and therefore the insulin production is blunted and, and that's critical. 
If you have prediabetes or diabetes, you need to be paying a special attention to this focus today because those are the people that are succumbing at an alarming rate to all these viruses, right? And especially the current novel coronavirus outbreak. So it's uh, the vast majority of people who are dying are the people who have an underlying medical condition. And guess what condition is the first one to come up when that's discussed? Diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, you name it. So those are conditions that can be reversed most of the time and at minimum uh, controlled in a healthy way so that we're not putting ourselves at higher risk. So in other words, let's do the homework. Let's figure out what we need to do to reverse these diseases in our lives so that we're not uh, having a depressed immune system and, and more likely to succumb. So light exercise immediately after meals. Even five minutes is helpful, but 10 or 15 minutes would be just walking, just walking around. And if you can't walk for whatever reason, Use your arms. You know, in other words, don't, a, don't ask the question of, well, doc, I can't do that because, you know, I got knee problems or I got back problems or, or hip problems, whatever it is. Ask the question, what is it that I can do? Right? Like, like President Kennedy said, well, ask not. Right? Right? He asked, but ask what you can do. Okay? And, and all of us can do some type of exercise, figure out what that is and do it. Okay, it's literally that simple. Okay, so, and, and, and your healthcare professionals can guide you in that as well. Um, other aspects of exercise is definitely do not overdo it. That, that could be one of the worst things that you could do. Because if you overdo exercise, be, and I'm not talking about compared to somebody else. I'm talking about compared to yourself. Okay, and so if I haven't been exercising for a while, okay, and I end up doing even 15% of what my friends are doing, I'm overdoing it for me, they may be underdoing it. You see? So we're not comparing ourselves, okay? We're, we're comparing ourselves with what, where we're at right now. So gradually improve that by doing some light activity every day after meals. And then every hour, every hour do something. Get up for a minute and walk around. Just, just like, like I'm standing up right now doing a little bit of walking. That's officially activity. Okay, we need to be active with a minimum of standing for two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, two hours in the evening. That's minimum. How many people do that? Very, very few. Okay? So, so it doesn't even, so, but then other exercise can count for those two, two, and two. Okay? But at least we should be standing and doing some light activity because that improves circulation. This is, this is very critical. Now, along with the exercise component here, which needs to be done prudently, I'm going to talk about the importance of fresh air and breathing. We should, spend, we should daily spend time outdoors in the fresh air, preferably doing some walking and enjoying the sunlight, right? So we get all those three natural remedies all at the same time. Um, but, but most of us are not aware of the fact that breathing and in in our posture and how we stand and how we sit uh, is critical to this. And so before we look around and see how we're sitting, everybody stand up. Everybody stand up right now, okay? Uh, <laughs> okay, because that blood is coagulating. It's not moving very rapidly right now. And so we want, uh, we want to do a little bit of activity. And so I'm just going to do a breathing activity with you right now. Every hour, okay, especially if we're not feeling well or if we're feeling a little listless, every hour we should consider doing some deep breathing exercises where you're taking a deep breath, six seconds, 
and then, uh, and, then, and then out for six seconds. And you do that for one minute. Okay, so basically we're, 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 we're doing that just under six times. Now, here's one reason we want to do this. Start, start practicing before I take you. Start taking some deep breaths. Okay, uh, I'm not seeing anybody take any deep You're holding your breath. <laughs> Is it that interesting? <laughs> okay, so, so start taking some deep breaths as I talk. Um, what happens when we're not deep breathing, when we're shallow breathing, which is what most people do, we're only using the upper lobes of the lungs, maybe the, low, the upper two-thirds of the lungs. That means that a large percentage of the immune cells, the white blood cells, the natural killer cells uh, that are designed to kill viruses and bacteria and pathogens and cancer are literally just hanging out in the R&R &R in the bottom lobes of the lung. They're literally hanging out. We call them mar they're marginated. They're just like holding on to the edge of the, of, of, of the alveoli or the, or, the, or the little capillaries that go through the lungs. And they're just little, they're literally having an R&R &R party. Okay? And, and so we don't want that. We want them working on our behalf. They're a, are part of our first defense system, right? And, and so just doing deep breathing or light exercise after a meal uh, will will stimulate blood flow to the lower lobes of the lungs, demarginating, uh, forcing those, those white blood cells and natural killer cells into the bloodstream where they now can kill on contact. So natural killer cells are licensed to kill. They don't got to go back to the immune centers and wait a day to get an audience and say, hey, listen, I saw this bad guy. What do we do about that? You know, can I get rid of him? No, they're told, you see a bad guy, you kill him on sight. That's, that's why they're called natural killer cells. <laughs> they're naturally born killers. They're there to destroy the viruses. So let's do a little bit of that right now. Okay? Deep breath. Ready? Use your arms a little. Don't hit the guys next to you or the girls next to you. Deep breath in. Okay? And then let it out all the way up. In through your nose, out through your mouth. Get it all out. Use that diaphragm. And again, a little more. Get it full, get those lower lobes working, and then another breath in. We'll do two more. And out. And in. Don't you feel better now? I feel better. Am I the only one? <laughs> I know Betsy feels better. <laughs> All right, you can sit down now. Now, um, by, by the way, they, um, maybe this is a good time to tell you, <laughs> ironically, one of the things that really caught my attention when I was, when I was studying the, the comments made on the side by many of these top experts around the world is, is a comment that was made, I believe, just yesterday on January the 31st, said, it's important to note that the novel coronavirus isn't just transmitted when you're in close proximity. It can be transmitted through air droplets up to six feet away from the person. Um, and, and they actually stated who is talking and breathing normally. So it's a really good thing that we're very low risk right now here in the United States, but it's, it is very important for us to realize that this novel coronavirus 
can be transmitted from an infected person prior to them having any symptoms by standing relatively near to them and while they're just talking or breathing normally. That is why this, they, they, there's been discussion of how effective a mask is because these air drop, these droplets that are through the air can touch down and connect to your eye. And the mask, you know, you don't walk around with a mask over your eye. Okay, so the main routes of transmission are nose, mouth, and eyes. Okay, so, so, so that, that will lead me to discuss some strategies a little bit later of what can be done uh, for this. Okay, so, so uh, breathing is very important. Posture is important. If we're, if, we're, if we're slouching while we're sitting, I'm not looking, I'm not looking. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm looking up. <laughs> if we're slouching while we're sitting, we're not do deep breathing, and we're limiting our immune defense against viruses. Pure and simple. So, so that, that's actually very, very profound difference in how well your body uh, works against uh, pathogens. Okay. Um, so, uh, what, which strategy is the most important? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've already taught. <laughs> bottom line is this: is that sleep is one of those irrefutable strategies, appropriate rest. That if we don't do it, we're not going to get better. Okay, I already, I already talked about that. So, so bottom line, a couple key strategies to consider. The goal, the ideal, is to essentially get bed, go to bed at the same time, get up at the same time, preferably an early, early to bed, early to rise. Okay, uh, you, you can finish that statement. And that is basically in the bed around 10 and, and up around 6 or something like that. And I know some of you are rolling your eyes right now. Okay, I know I struggle with that too. This whole week, I didn't do that, okay, because I was working on this, okay, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, so, so but, but recognize if you don't get to bed on time, the next morning, your immune system, you know, so if you stay up like two, three hours later than 10 o'clock than usual, your next day, your immune system is about 50% suppressed. 50, your natural killer activity, 50% suppressed, which means that, that you could be exposed, theoretically, to, to uh, any virus, the flu virus or the novel coronavirus, uh, whatever, uh, uh, every day of the week. And if your immune system is, is hardy enough, you could actually wipe out that early exposure and it doesn't generate uh, an infection, you know, where, where it's taking over your body. It gets wiped out. That's what your immune system is supposed to do. Right. And so so everybody, there's a continuum at which point the, uh, a tipping point occurs where your immune system is no longer able to address with that level of exposure. Now, theoretically, if we get a huge exposure, even the strongest immune system may not be able to uh, deal with it effectively. And we need other strategies. We need medical intervention. OK, but but um, it, it's also true that many of the exposures that, that people are commonly exposed to that lead to infections are, are unnecessary if you were simply had an immune system that was working on par with, what's put, with, with what is possible. So, so that's, that's something that's really critical to understand. And so the, the one day that you, that you don't get your sleep and you get exposed to the same 
dose of virus that you'd been exposed to for, for days and weeks before, that could potentially get you. Okay, now you've got to work a lot harder with the natural and the simple strategies to catch up. Okay, all right. So, um, bottom line is sleep, depri uh, sleep depri deprivation or disruption ultimately impacts a full one-third of the entire genome. So we have about 20,000 genes in our body, the human genome, okay? And roughly almost 7,000 of those genes are disrupted. In other words, their ability to activate the enzymes and the metabolic processes in our body is disrupted. And what's the, what's the consequence of that? We're more susceptible to illness, okay? So, so that's, that's critical to understand. Another, another key strategy is that we need to be well hydrated. Uh, uh, one of the causes of, uh, 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 associated with sepsis and, and premature death due to severe inflammatory disease associated with viral illness is simple dehydration. So don't let yourself get dehydrated. Do not trust your thirst instinct. It's never good enough. Never. Okay, and so here, here's the bottom line with, with, with thirst or water. There's three most important times to get water. What time of the day are you the most dehydrated typically? When you first wake up. Why? Because you've lost a tremendous amount of, of water and fluids through perspiration, urination. Okay? And so now you need to replenish that. Otherwise, your kidneys are not going to be healthy. And your kidneys are one of the most susceptible organs when exposed to these type of virulent viruses, lead, and that which can lead to, even if you survive the condition, which a lot of people do, they have chronic kidney disease for life that gets worse and worse over the years because of that. So, um, so drink, hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. So first thing in the morning, uh, after you've used the restroom, uh, put, a, put, a, uh, put a pot of water boiling, that, that gets on some pure water, some filtered water, and then put that in your big water mug. So you should get 16 to 20 ounces of, of extra warm, a little bit hot water. You can add a little bit of organic lemon to that if you wish, okay? And just that's, that's your wake-up fluid. You know, pe coffee doesn't wake you up because of the caffeine. It wakes you up because you're drinking warm to hot liquid. Caffeine can't wake you up. It just keeps you up, okay? So, so, so water is so much healthier for you than the caffeine, okay? So much healthier for you. So, so take advantage of basically 16 to 20 ounces of water first thing in the morning. Then the second and third most important time to hydrate is mid-morning and mid-afternoon. Basically about two hours after breakfast or 90 minutes after breakfast, uh, drink, drink two glasses of water or 16 ounces or more of cool or cold water, okay? And then if you're still thirsty, or even if you're not thirsty, okay, drink a little bit of water, maybe 20, 30 minutes before lunch. If you feel like drinking anything with a meal, you're dehydrated, okay? And so you should never have to drink anything with a meal. Now, if you get to the meal and you're eating a meal and you're thirsty, don't say, well, I can't drink any water now because Dr. Youngberg said I shouldn't be drinking with my meals. It's too late to make that argument. You're thirsty, you got to hydrate. you got to drink with your meals at that point. But plan ahead, right? Come up with a strategy 
get your phone alarm set to like 10 or 10.30 and 3 or 3.30 and just it reminds you, drink your water. Drown those buggies. You know, get, help your body flush this system. Okay, so now there's, I already talked about the hydrotherapy uh, for the fomentations. Let me tell you real quick a natural strategy using water therapy or hydrotherapy for, uh, for sinus. It's well known that the coronavirus uh, likes to hang out in the sinuses, okay, nostrils and sinuses, and, um, and in the throat area. And so, the, the, so there's some simple remedies that you can use for that that we'll touch on in a minute. But the first thing that we do is take advantage of the more fundamental natural remedies, which includes steam therapy. You basically put a big pot of water on the stove, uh, boiling, Okay, and then uh, you, you get a chair to sit near the, the stove. Make sure you never lean over that. Get a, get a piece of paper to funnel the steam towards your face. Now, again, if, if it starts to get too hot, you just close the damper, right? You just shut off that steam so you don't burn, right? Then you try a little bit more, and you do that for three minutes, breathing in through the nose that steam which basically activates the immune system in the sinuses, uh, helps unclog the system so you don't get secondary bacterial infections or fungal infections, um, and, and basically just clearing that out. It, it just decongests you. Three minutes steam, and then you put down the piece of paper, and you have a shallow pan of ice water next to you, and you just do this. You just... You just take that ice water, you can use a washcloth if you wish, and put it right to your face to cool off your face and your exterior uh, nostril area. And do that for 30 seconds and then back to steam three minutes, 30 seconds cold, steam three minutes, 30 seconds cold, and you're done with that series. If you have issues with sinuses, you should do that once, twice, even three times a day. Do what you got to do. Okay, take advantage of that natural remedy. Now, there's another way, if you don't have these fancy fomentations like I have, or if uh, your spouse or, or family member isn't home to help you do this properly, you can do what I call the poor man's or the poor woman's hydrotherapy. Just get in the shower, okay, and, and just soap down with Castile soap to get all, all the toxins off your body, okay? And then as soon as you're done with that, turn the water as hot as you can take it right on your throat, in your chest area. Don't burn yourself. Use common sense, okay? <laughs> okay. Yeah, but the first, the first time you do it, go be a little bit uh, conservative. See what you can handle. And then for three minutes, just leave, it, leave that water pouring on your neck area, stimulating engorgement of your lymphatic system and the, and the capillaries in that area to draw immune cells to that area. And then you go cold for for 30 seconds. Now in California, it's, it's actually not cold. It might, it, it might feel a little bit cold to us, us locals, but if, if, if you grew up in Michigan or Wisconsin or, or Minnesota or anywhere else, you know what cold really is in a shower, right? And actually that's the best. The, the extremes in temperature are the best. It really activates the immune system nicely. So you go back and forth, just like the steam therapy, three minutes, 30 seconds, you do that three series, and then at the end, by the way, the second and third time, you can actually go hotter. 
because your body is now capable of transmitting the heat more. Um, so you do that uh, at least once. So if, if you're feeling the early signs, the early symptoms of flu of any kind or viral respiratory illness of any kind, uh, or really any infection of any kind, take advantage of optimizing your immune system in that way. Um, and you can do that once a day, twice a day, three times a day. So the more severe your case, the more aggressive you got to be to do. That's a form of passive exercise to get circulation going. And as the cold and hot comes, it, it basically uh, massages the lymphatics so the immune, immune uh, cells get activated by the viruses and then are able to dramatically increase what we call spontaneous blastogenesis, where the, the B cells, the, the white blood cells, the B cells, are able to generate a tremendously higher level of antibodies against the very specific virus that's in question. Okay, so, so that, that's, uh, that's it. Now, another important thing about hydrotherapy. As soon as you're done with hydrotherapy, you need a 20-minute nap. Remember the importance that we uh, emphasized on rest. The, the Dr. Charles Thomas, um, who, who was one of my major professors at Loma Linda University, um, it was a, 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 also a physical therapist who ran his own hydrotherapy clinics and, and, and basically gave talks all around the world on how to do hydrotherapy appropriately. Uh, he, he taught me how to do this. I have actually spent some time at his clinic in Banning, California, and, uh, and uh, he, he basically said, make sure that after every session, okay, that, that you, you say a good prayer with the patient, okay, and then you put, it, you put, it, put him to the bed rest for at least 20 minutes. Preferably, you do it at the end of the day when they can actually sleep through the night. And, and that rest phase dramatically optimizes how the immune system can fight whatever is going on in the system. So a very, a very powerful strategy indeed. Uh, okay, so um, soaking up the sun. The, um, now we're getting into a combination of natural and simple remedies here. This is, this is extremely, extremely important. So let me just cut to the chase here. Uh, about 10 years ago, I had the pleasure, the privilege of going to a medical conference here in San Diego, California. And I, I was able to talk directly with Dr. Robert Heaney, who is a professor of medicine at Creighton University in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, it published, uh, published hundreds, literally hundreds of studies on the power of vitamin D. And it basically, he, he stated that the way vitamin D works, that the vitamin that comes from sunshine, is that it is the key that unlocks the genetic library that actually allows, allows your body to, with, with vitamin D access, that allows you to go to the library and find the template, the, the, the master plan for developing the very chemotherapeutic chemical that is necessary to kill the specific virus or pathogen that is in your system. So there's nothing more tailored to specificity, uh, nothing better than the body's own immune system if it has the tools to do its job. And one of the, one of the, the biggest challenges is that there's still so much 
conflicting information about vitamin D being good, vitamin D being bad, oh, you don't need to check your vitamin D. Well, let me just tell you, everybody should know their vitamin D level. Okay, I know that you could find uh, opinion statements in the medical journals that say oh, you don't need to check your vitamin D, but in my opinion, it's, it's absolutely wrong. Okay, it, it's a shame that we're not taking advantage of a simple test. And by the way, forget about asking your insurance company to pay for it. Okay, this is your health. Just do it. Okay, I, I, I know so many people, they don't do anything unless the insurance company pays for it. Well, even if you're dying, you know, or even if you could, you could do something that would cure your health, okay, insurance companies aren't there to take care of every medical need you have. They just have their rules and they follow them. So stop thinking that, that their guidelines are going to solve your problem because they probably won't in cases like this in particular. So, so check your vitamin D levels and, and get them tested. So bottom line is that there's a molecular and genetic basis for why vitamin D is so critical, and you want to have it in the upper range of normal. 30, 32, 35 is not good enough. And yet most of us who have never checked our vitamin D are going to be under 30. Unless you're supplementing vitamin D right now, you're probably going to be deficient. Okay? So, so that's why, don't take my word for it. Test yourself, okay, and take your own word for it. Okay, so I mean, I, I, I typically don't like believing other people and what they tell me. I, 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 I test it for myself, right? Just like the Bereans, right? Test for yourself, okay, to figure that out. Okay, so... The, the, the reason why vitamin D supplementation is essential, and especially essential in times like this, is because in the wintertime, if, if you live above the 37th parallel, which is the vast majority of Americans, you are generating zero vitamin D for up to six months, fall and winter, even if you're outside all day. Okay, so, so do not accept the arguments that even some of my colleagues raise, that if you're just outside for 10 or 15 minutes with your hands and your face showing, you get all the vitamin D you want. Maybe in the summer. Maybe. But I haven't even found that to be true. Why? Because I measure people's vitamin Ds, and I have for the last 20 years, every single patient. So I know. Okay. I used to believe the idea that if you just spend a little bit of time in the sun, that your vitamin Ds would be great. Okay. But as soon as I started testing, as soon as I tested my own vitamin D level, I learned it wasn't true because I was in Guam and I spent like an hour or two in the sun almost every day after lunch walking on the beach because I, I worked in the evenings as well. So I would take a little break in the afternoon in my swimsuit walking on, on Ipau Beach. Okay, my vitamin D levels were low even after doing that. Okay, so don't believe that if you're in your outside a lot that your vitamin D is good. The only way you know is by checking, and, you, and the only way to optimize that for most of us is to supplement, and on average, that's going to be 5,000 units a day, on average. Okay, but don't take my word for that. Test yourself, and then figure out what your dose is based on your testing. Okay, so by the way, this is critical. It may be the most critical single test that you can do to avert or prevent contamination with the virus when exposed, okay, and, and uh, the, the, the development of symptoms after being exposed, and the tendency to transmit that to others, 
your vitamin D level by itself may be the, the one of their rate-limiting factors. Well, it is one of their rate-limiting factors, and it may be one of the most important ones. So make sure you take advantage of that. Okay, so the, the other thing is if you're out in the sun in the, uh, any time of the, of, uh, of the year, uh, we, I call it the sun shadow standard. It's, a, it's basically uh, a, a, a phrase that describes your shadow. Okay, if your shadow is longer than you are tall, you're generating zero vitamin D. And I guarantee if you go outside tomorrow, uh, in the beautiful sunshine that we've been getting over the last couple of days, okay, the, 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 the sun has to be above 45 degrees in the sky before you generate any vitamin D. Okay, and essentially there's only about an hour and a half, maybe two hours in the day here in Southern California in the wintertime when you get that. So if you're out in the morning or in the late afternoon, your shadow is going to be way longer than, you're, than you are tall. You're generating no vitamin D. It's still good for you. It's still antiviral on your body. It's still good for your brain. It's still good for emotions, but it's generating zero vitamin D. My point, supplement vitamin D appropriately. Okay? Everybody should really be doing it. Um, so, all right. See, the, the, the key studies on this, uh, there was a group of, 200 African-Americans, which are more likely to have low vitamin D status. Why? Because their darker skin protects them from the damage from sunlight and the ultraviolet radiation, which means there's less of a tendency to produce vitamin C because of the darker pigment of the skin. So they're protected in that way, but they're also, the downside is that their vitamin D status is going to be low. By the way, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter, no matter what skin tone you have, you're going to probably have low vitamin D. It's just on a scale. Okay, so, so this group of African-American women, by the way, one of the, one of the best medical organizations to promote this concept of vitamin D supplementation is the African-American Nurses Association because they, they're trying to get the word out to, to, to everybody uh, uh, that is, uh, is African-American or everybody that has darker skin tone, you're, you're prone to greater risk of vitamin D deficiency. So bottom line is if you supplement even a little bit of vitamin D for a period of three years, your risk of developing the seasonal flu drops by two-thirds. In other words, those not getting even a little bit of vitamin D were three times more likely to get the flu than those who were getting a little bit of vitamin C. They should have been using 5,000 uh, or more, but even small amounts is protective. Okay, so um, there, there, was a, there was a powerful study here showing that, um, yeah, by the way, if, if any of you need to leave, I'm not going to be hurt at all if you need to leave. It basically, time's up. I get that, but I'm going to keep going. Okay, so, so I, I wanna, I'm going to finish this. So, so don't hesitate, really. I'm serious. This is going to be this is going to be available online. So so if I don't want you to get stressed and then your immune system to be depressed because you're stressed and you got somewhere else to be. So so just do what you got to do. All right. <laughs> I'm going to do what I got to do. All right. So the, the, there was a key study here um, shown using school children and whether they were supplemented with even a little bit of vitamin D and how that impacted the flu rate for that year. Bottom line, this was. This was 10 years ago in, in 2010, published in American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And it essentially, 
uh, they, the children uh, were given 1,200 units a day, which is, again, a super low dose. They should have been given more than that. Uh, and, but those who got a little bit during the winter months, okay, actually uh, were, were only 10.8% of them were diagnosed with the flu compared to their classmates that didn't get, that they were randomized not to get the vitamin D, they had almost a 19% uh, level of the flu. So it was a dramatic increased risk of the flu. Basically, if they got the vitamin D, they only had 30%, 36% of the risk of getting the flu compared to those without the vitamin D. In other words, one-third of the normal risk with such a small dose. We should all be taking advantage of this. And so what was really interesting here is that for kids with previous history of asthma, uh, uh, the risk of flu in those taking the vitamin D was only 17% uh, or less than one-fifth of those kids who had no vitamin D supplementation. So in other words, the more likely our children are to have some underlying medical condition, the greater the need is to take advantage of vitamin D supplementation appropriately. Okay, same thing for tuberculosis. You know, tuberculosis has been a scourge of, of, uh, of the world. And, and even on the best medical therapies, the, the ability to fully eradicate tuberculosis is only like 76, 77%. But if you just add vitamin D at 10,000 units per day to that for at least six months or more, it becomes 100% eradicated. And so vitamin D isn't uh, be-all, end-all, but it's a very important piece of the synergy that we need to be taking advantage of. Okay, now, what are some practical steps? Let's just say, let's just say you go home tonight, you got stressed out talking about all this stuff, and, and you start feeling a sore throat, and you wake up kind of a little, little chilled and a little sore, you go, oh, my goodness, you know what, you know, what happened to me? Um, what do you do? Well, you already know all the natural things, right? Okay, uh, hydrotherapy and, and, and the diet and breathing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, spend some time outside in the sunlight a couple times, uh, twice a day. Uh, and then, but here's what I would do with the vitamin D. First of all, unless proven otherwise, if it's in the wintertime, even here in Southern California, uh, I would recommend at least 5,000 units of vitamin D a day. Many of my patients who actually know what their vitamin D level is, if it's not already into the 70 to 100 range, I will give them 10,000 units a day daily until we document that they're well into that upper end of the normal range. Okay, we don't want you to be above 100, but understand that it's not truly toxic based on the medical literature until you're well over 250 in your blood. And nobody gets that. You know, that's, that's, that'd be, that'd be, you'd be taking a whole bunch of vitamin D, way more than you really need. So... In other words, take, take probably 5,000 units a day, unless you need more based on testing. And then, well, let's say, what if you have symptoms right now? Well, okay, you, you, get, you get a bottle of liquid vitamin D, and, and you, you take, you, I like to get the bottles to have 2,000 units per drop. Okay, that's why if you, if you need 10,000, you take five drops. But there's been a actually published medical uh, medical paper some years ago shows basically answering this question, well, how much vitamin D would be prudent to take uh, as an acute dose if you're having symptoms of a cold or flu? 
And the answer is that you can take up to a, a, a thousand, it's actually officially it was 2,000 units per kilogram. But here in America, we don't think in kilograms. And so basically, it's just under 1,000 units of vitamin D per pound of body weight per day for three days. Now, that's actually a lot of vitamin D. Okay, so if you weigh 100 pounds, that's 100,000 units a day for three days. Okay, if you weigh 200 pounds, that's 200,000 units of vitamin D per day. Now, that's what was officially published. I'll tell you what I do, what I suggest to my patients is, is I say, you know, what I've seen work over and over again is half that, where you just take 50,000 units at a time. Uh, and, and I'll tell you a quick story. My mom and my dad and I were in Geneva, the center of the, uh, the World Health Organization, uh, attending a health conference at the World Health Organization. And the first night in the hotel, we had been sleep deprived for two nights because the, the flights were delayed in, in, in uh, Washington. And so we literally had two nights of very little sleep. And so we ended up in Geneva, and we were, like, trashed. And my mother, who was, uh, who was 85-ish at the time, she said, Wes, I am coming down with a bad flu. I said, well, how do you know that? She says, when I feel like this, I know I'm going to be out for at least a week. And we're, like, beginning a tour of Europe and, and a conference in Geneva that next day. And so we're thinking, well, there goes our, you know, we're, I, we were on a speaking tour around Europe. And I mean, are you kidding me? Well, what are we going to do? And so fortunately, I had a bottle. It's not this one, but it's a bottle about this size of, of vitamin D that I had taken in my carry-on. And so I said, Mom, open up. And so I, I, I took the dropper, and I knew that one dropper full was about 50,000 units of vitamin D. And she obediently, this is my mom, she not, doesn't obey me ever, okay? But this time she, she was willing to obey me. <laughs> she came up to me, opened her mouth, I, 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 like, a mama, like a mama hen, I gave her the vitamin D. And uh, she went to bed, woke up the next morning, was fine. Now I know that's an N of one, that's an anecdotal uh, testimony or case study. But I've seen that happen countless times not only to myself and family members, but to, to multitudes of patients. It's powerful. Okay, now tip, if you still feel a little bit off the next morning, you do another, another 50,000. Later on that night, if you still feel a little off, another 50,000. You do that for three or four days. If you catch that early enough, you probably will knock it out in one day. Okay? So that's how powerful vitamin D is. So, so those are the strategies that are, are very, very important. Now, let me comment on a couple other things here. Um, the, there, there are studies, and you, you've always heard from your parents, don't walk around barefoot, especially in the winter. You know, when I was a kid, I would literally I'd go, run out in the snow on the icy street in Michigan wearing just, just cutoffs, no shirt, you know, uh, no, no, no shoes, no socks, and I would literally run around the block, and I thought that was fine. Well, that was horrible for the immune system. There's basically a study here uh, uh, just documenting the fact that you're much more likely, you're, you're, you're uh, uh, basically, uh, you're, you're much more likely to come down with a cold, the common cold, if, you exp if your feet are cold. Okay, so bottom line, 
Keep your tootsies warm at all times, especially if you're at risk. And you know when that is. You know your body, right? And so don't let your feet get chilled, ever. In fact, don't let your body get chilled, ever. Okay, once you take a shower or after you do the hydrotherapy, the worst thing that you could do is walk around with, with uh, hair that's wet. You got to towel off thoroughly, then use a hair dryer, dry your entire body, dry your hair thoroughly, and then wrap up, dress up, get, get, get warm, and cover your tootsies. Okay, not just with socks, because socks still don't get, is, you're walking around on the bare floor with socks, you're still losing heat, a lot of heat through your feet which depresses your immune system. Be aware of that. Okay. Now, there's this concept of first-line therapy, second-line therapy, third-line therapy. First-line therapy are the natural remedies we already outlined. Second-class second therapy would be the simple remedies, including the nutritional supplements that can help boost the immune system. And third-line therapy would be using appropriate medications. Now, this is true for all, all chronic or acute conditions. Unfortunately, right now, with the novel coronavirus, there is no medication for it. Now, there may be some. There was a couple antivirals that were used for SARS that were considered to be somewhat effective, but probably not nearly as effective as the things we've already addressed. Okay, so, so let's jump into this. Um, um, we, we already dealt with the stress issue. Let me just say real quick that, that if you're under stress, figure out what to deal with that. Because, as I suggested earlier, stress is one of the worst things for the immune system. we got to bring closure to stress. Okay, we got to learn how to deal with it. That doesn't mean our problems are solved immediately. That means we are giving it to God or using appropriate counsel to discuss it and talk about it so that we can address those issues at the right time and not constantly worry about it because worrying is just destructive to our immune system. So bottom line is if you're stressed, your risk of, of, of the common cold and any viral illness goes way up. Okay, so we got to learn to deal with that. One of the biggest stresses in our life is the stress of unforgiveness. Feeling that we're not forgiven or not being willing to forgive others. And so, there, you know, we, we've done... 90-minute talks just on this topic right here in this, in, this, in this church. But let me just say this. Forgiveness is the only prescription in the entire universe that is powerful enough to unlock the chemical bonds of hostility, resentment, and, its, and bitterness. It is the medicine of greatest importance. Hostility and unforgiveness is, in essence, inflammation. is physical, chemical inflammation in our body. They're one and the same. Okay? And so if we don't want to have inflammation that drives us into immune depression, that drives us if we're sick and have severe symptoms into sepsis and death, okay, then we got to get rid of unforgiveness. And that's all I'll say about that for right now. Okay, so, um, uh, uh, so let me talk for just a few minutes <laughs> uh, on the topic of nutrient therapies. I recently did a, a workshop that is available to, uh, primarily to physicians and, and clinicians uh, that deals with the power of nutrients as a primary intervention, yes, primary intervention for many medical disorders, especially behavioral or neurologic disorders. So Dr. Bill Walsh has spent the last 40 years doing research and, and literally working with over 30,000 patients 
that uh, by doing specific laboratory tests and figuring out how different nutrient deficiencies or accesses dramatically damage the body's health and the immune system. Now, one, one thing that he's well known for in particular is the relationship between copper and zinc. And, and we could spend a whole hour just on this topic. In fact, I just did a conference that spent two hours just on copper-zinc ratios. Everybody should have their copper-zinc ratios checked because if your copper is high, that means you're toxic. Okay? And, and if your zinc is low, uh, anytime zinc is low, your body absorbs more toxins and holds on to more toxins. And toxins depress the immune system. I don't think we have to explain that. Uh, but, so we want to get rid of toxins. Now, the other thing about zinc in particular, and in particular the example that you see on the screen, is that when you take zinc as a lozenge and hold it in your mouth, at the back of your throat, the zinc actually kills viruses in your throat. And so one of the treatments, if somebody has a viral, has a cold or, or any kind of viral infection that is, that is respiratory-related, Using zinc lozenges just makes perfect sense. And I could, I could cite dozens of studies on this. We don't have time for that, so we're just going to go on. Um, now, what about, what about this? In, a very interesting says that this is Journal of Veterinary Medicine, 2018. Uh, the efficacy or the effectiveness of oral iodine or iodide uh, to prevent bovine respiratory disease complex. This is, was a very interesting study. Because, because it emphasized at the, begin, at the introduction of the study that these bovine respiratory complexes occur when animals are crowded together in wild animal markets and the like. You know, what was the cause in Wuhan City of this coronavirus outbreak? It was actually directly caused by animals being in close contact uh, with each other, uh, not, not in sanitary conditions, and they basically, the, the, the virus in their body mutated to the point that it could spread to humans and then from human to human. Uh, so, so in other words, uh, uh, it was all about using iodine as a way to prevent spread of these viruses. And so we've all known for, well, for, for, for hundred, hundreds of years that iodine is a powerful antiviral antibacterial, antifungal, and yet it doesn't get a lot, a lot of notice because, well, you know, the patent on iodine ran out a long, long time ago. So, so bottom line is that iodine has actually even been shown to be effective against Ebola virus and, and other really hard cold viruses. So should we pay attention to the appropriate use of iodine as one of the many but effective antiviral strategies that are simple and cheap? Absolutely. So how do we do that? How do we do this? So the, the, uh, if, here's, a, here's a study that looked at the uh, enhancement of respiratory mucosal antiviral defenses, right? It's all about improving our antiviral defenses that are natural in the body already, okay, uh, by using uh, this, this physiologic process of oxidation that occurs when we have adequate levels of zinc in that area. Okay, so... so um, there's, there's, there's power. So here is, here is a, a bottle. This is my bottle, same one, actually, uh, of, of liquid iodine. This is a fairly diluted form of liquid iodine. But, 
But what, what I actually recommend uh, to my patients is that people who have chronic postnasal drip, people who have Marcon's or this uh, uh, multiple antibiotic resistant coagulus negative staph uh, bacteria in, in their sinuses, uh, people who have anything going on with their sinuses, use, use among various strategies that I recommend uh, that are encouraged in the medical literature is just use li liquid iodine, okay? Okay, and, it, and it can, you can actually spray this right on your face to actually, and even, even, even right into your open eyes like this, okay? And that will actually help protect your eyes, have a better barrier against viruses, your face, and, and this, the more, the, one of the, the a Nobel laureate um, back in 1945 discovered that when mice were exposed to a lethal mist of viruses, they died. But if you first swab their snouts with a little bit of, of appropriate iodine, okay, and, and they, they used to swab and swab their snout, they, they didn't die. Okay, why? Because the iodine is virucidal. It's powerfully antiviral. Okay, so, so anyway, so this is it's a simple strategy. So it's prudent, okay, especially when we don't know what's going on, is take a vet. You can use a little bit of spray rider in your hands, okay? And so now, now your hands, by the way, if you use an, uh, uh, just a, sanit uh, a hand sanitizer, the best ones have iodine in it. Okay, this is just kind of a, a quick, easy way to bypass it. Just do this, and you can spray it on your face. You can spray it up in the air and just let it rest on you. Uh, who knows, maybe... Maybe the Chinese health workers were spraying iodine over, over uh, their province. Uh, uh, that, that would actually have been a good call. All right. So, so iodine is, is another key strategy. You can buy these uh, snoot little bottles with the pharmaceutical grade uh, cap application that you can unscrew and put on other bottles and use them that way. So you can buy that on Amazon very easily. And so, so take advantage. It's a simple strategy. You know, and if you have a runny nose, if you have sinus congestion, if you have symptoms, take advantage of that, you know, two or three squirts each nostril three or four times a day. Why not? What do you got to lose? Okay, you have everything to gain there. All right, so. Um, all right. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Um, uh, there's, there's um, I have a whole section of sepsis, and, and uh, which is, let me, let me just skip through this real quick. The, the bottom line with sepsis is this, is that they, one of the biggest risk factors for it uh, has to do with the inflammation that is triggered by viral illness, especially viral illness that isn't mitigated by the appropriate natural and simple remedies. And so sepsis is far more likely to occur when we're low in key nutrients in our body, especially vitamin C. In fact, essentially, 80, over 80% 80 of individuals who have sepsis uh, have extremely low levels of vitamin C, okay? And many of them are actually uh, scorbutic. In other words, their levels are so low that that def is defined by having scurvy. Okay, so, um, so there's, there's a, by the way, sepsis is the number one cause of excess cost in hospitals. Number one cost period in hospitals. Out of, out of the 20 conditions, I didn't expect you to read this. I just wanted to show you that this was documented in 2013. Sepsis 
is the number one uh, expense in hospital care, period, okay, uh, by, by payer. Uh, and then uh, diabetes is all the way down at 18th. Another, so when's the last time you heard of a lecture about sepsis? Okay, so let's pay attention to this. And, and so just cutting to the chase, the, uh, the uh, Dr. Paul Merrick actually did some research on this a couple years ago. Dr. Eric Madrid, who's a family physician and one of the main partners at Rancho Family Medical Group here in Temecula and the Inland Empire of Southern California, uh, he, he shot me an email about a couple of years ago. And he says, Wes, look, man, you've been talking about this for 20 years. And look, this, this doctor is using relatively low dose IV vitamin C, one and a half grams uh, every, every six hours uh, to, to basically dramatically increase the cure rate of sepsis in the emergency rooms or in hospitals. And yet he, he got all kinds of nasty letters from his colleagues for even talking about the potential value of vitamin C. And of course, uh, you know, he's just doing it because it's the right thing. Uh, if other people don't agree, then uh, that's okay. Uh, but, but, you know, if somebody wants to get the benefit of it, take advantage of the medical research that's been published on this. And so he calls it the HAP method, where he gives an uh, IV hydrocortisone, vitamin C, and thiamine, 200 milligrams once a day of, of the vi B vitamin, thiamine, uh, in a treatment for severe sepsis and septic shock. So, so there's, uh, there's a lot more about that that we could talk about. Uh, bottom line is, is uh, there, there, there's, there's articles here that basically say this. Um, the summary of should we supplement, this was published in 2008, 18 rather, by uh, current opinions in critical care. In other words, if somebody's at risk of dying of sepsis, are we going to have a theoretical debate about whether it's safe or, or effective to use the, this HAT therapy that uses hydrocortisone, vitamin C, and thiamine, or do we do it? And there's actually a lot, a lot of doctors out there that they don't want to do it. They're just against the principle, which, which is infuriating. But, but essentially, uh, they're saying here, a short course of intravenous vitamin C in pharmacological doses seems to be a promising, well-tolerated, and cheap adjuvant therapy to moderate the overwhelming oxidative stress in severe sepsis, trauma, and reperfusion after ischemia. Large randomized control tiles are necessary to provide more evidence before wide-scale implementation can be recommended. They added that because they had to add that in any peer-reviewed document. That's the way it always is. But the bottom line is if I or a child of mine or a friend of mine ends up in a hospital with any risk of sepsis, I'm going to make sure they're in a hospital that's willing to do this protocol because there are plenty of them out there. Okay, so... Um, uh, so that they, they, the bottom line here, there's all kinds of reasons why this is beneficial. And, and here's, here's, here's the key point on the vitamin C. A lot of people say, well, it's just not natural to take vitamin C, you know, as a supplement. It's just not natural. Really? Okay. Uh, uh, what about, is it natural that we have a mutation? We as humans have a mutation. Uh, one of the few species on earth amongst, amongst including... Um, uh, monkeys, apes, and um, uh, guinea pigs, and uh, bats, interestingly enough. I think that's one reason this, muta this coronavirus mutation 
came from bats. That's the current uh, most likely uh, opinion on why and where this, where the reservoir uh, of this coronavirus came from is bats. Okay, bats can't make their own vitamin C. Whereas every other animal, almost 99% of, of species on this earth can take glucose, sugar, and enzymatically convert it into vitamin C. And so, for instance, a, a goat that is 70 kilograms can naturally makes 2,000 to 4,000 milligrams of vitamin C every day in a healthy state. This is why in zoos, if gorillas aren't supplemented 4,000 milligrams of vitamin C a day, they get sick. Because in the wild, they eat so many plants, they're getting about 4,000 milligrams of vitamin C. Okay? So, so this is very interesting how that works. Now, if that goat became sick, it would immediately start producing the equivalent of about 20,000 milligrams of vitamin C for that, that day. That's just the genetics and the physiology of it. So now that you know you can't make vitamin C and you're at, you're at, a, uh, uh, you're, you're at risk because of that, okay, you have a couple of choices to make. Fortunately, in our technology, we have access to vitamin C and, and we should be taking advantage of it. That's the bottom line I'm saying, especially if we're concerned about our immune system right now we should be taking uh, the amount of vitamin C in divided doses throughout the day that would be equivalent to what an animal of our weight typically makes. That's what, that's what Linus Pauling, the two-time Nobel laureate, was saying 35 years ago. And by the way, he's considered by those who knew him to be the smartest scientist, not of just his generation, but in the last couple hundred years. He was considered to be smarter than Albert Einstein. He could look at a problem and understand it with, without doing the research. And that's how smart this guy was. And many people just laugh at him. Well, they laugh at him because they don't have the wisdom and the, and the intelligence that he had. Uh, all right, so uh, bottom line. Okay, so, so basically I recommend that you just take a little bit of vitamin C every day. And... Um, there's, there's really no downside to it, okay? And basically, you make sure you don't take so much that you get watery stools. That's, that's pretty much the rule. Okay, now, here, here's the trick. If, um, I, if, if, if you're sick, if you have a viral condition or some type of illness, your body absorbs a tremendous amount of vitamin C. So you, you can basically, if you're taking vitamin C to bowel tolerance, your bowel tolerance increases dramatically, and you can, you can literally take up to 20, 30 grams a day if you're sick, okay? Uh, if you try to do that when you're not sick, you're going to be on the toilet all day long, okay? So in other words, be prudent, pay attention, follow the science, um, and so vitamin C can be uh, an effective adjuvant uh, to support the immune system, and it is directly virucidal, uh, and anti-inflammatory and antitoxic. So it, it helps basically potentially limit the risk of developing severe symptoms if you do get exposed. Uh, another, another quick, and we're almost done here, another quick strategy. I'm just giving you a couple of the things that, that would just seem reasonable for everybody to be aware of. 
Uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of things that you can do. We don't have time for all that. Uh, but um, as, I've, as I've worked with uh, top physicians and, and nutritionists around the world in, in, in helping individuals be healthy as possible, especially if they have chronic conditions, chronic immune-related conditions, um, they, uh, and a tendency to catch every little bug that comes around, whether it's bacterial, fungal, or viral. Biocide and spray uh, can be used for the throat. It's powerful. It, it's actually more potent than the other strategies than, than liquid iodine. It's more potent than that. It's an herbal uh, concoction that, that is developed by one of the top uh, nutraceutical uh, firms. And essentially, it can just knock out, uh, if you have a sore throat and you use it right away, it'll knock that out within, within hours sometimes. And uh, so it, it's... Not tolerated by everybody, but it's worth a try. It's something that would be prudent to have in your own natural medicine cabinet. Uh, so it's called biocidin. And you can take, you can take one of these uh, misters uh, and put it on top of that same bottle, and you can spray that into your sinuses as well uh, or in your throat. Um, just be a little bit more careful with that compared to the iodine because it's, it's, it's more potent. Right, so you just uh, all right. So that's one um, probiotics. Okay, if 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 you're if you're wanting to optimize your immune system, consider using a. Uh, this is the one I personally use, but there's many good brands out there. Just making sure you're using a good clinical grade, pharmaceutical grade brand uh, that has multiple strains and roughly, you know, uh, uh, this this one has 20 billion units, uh, uh, cell forming units per capsule. Okay. But it's not just probiotics, it's the prebiotics. And prebiotics are the food for the probiotics to optimize the, the, uh, the immune system of the gut. Okay, so the microbiome can be enhanced and optimized. Up to 80% of your immune system resides in the gut. We call it the GALT, gastric-associated uh, or uh, gut-associated lymphatic tissue. And... And that, that lymphatic tissue responds to the microbiome. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.